Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content director at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are starting a new Friday series with James Jordan, and in this series, he's going to be giving a Christian view of war. And here, he'll be talking specifically about pacifism. Just a reminder, if you have not yet signed up for the Theopolis app, you can get your first month free by using the code Theopolitan at checkout. So head to the website app.theopolisinstitute.com to create your account, use the code Theopolitan to get that first month free, and then download that app on your iOS or Android device and begin diving into all of that great content. And if you need that information, it is down there in the show notes. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing a Christian view of war and the issue of pacifism. We begin this morning a short series on the biblical view of war. We'll be talking about what the Bible has to say about war and peace for the next several weeks. And this morning we'll talk about the theology of warfare and against pacifism. And we'll look at what the Bible has to say about these things. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would bless us as we consider these things together. Give us the mind of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. The Christian religion has done more to bring peace to the world than any other creed or ideology ever has. And our faith as Christians is basically pacific or even pacifistic. Peace and the overcoming of war and conflict lies right at the heart of our belief. And yet the Bible does not teach us that war is always wrong. In fact, God's wrath is one of his one manifestation of his very nature. So much is this the case that Romans chapter 12 verse 19 tells us that God's wrath is one of his personal prerogatives. Never take your own revenge, beloved, it says. But leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance is mine. And when we talk about how we should view war and the horrors of war and the tribulations of war and the sufferings of war, we have to remember that all men are under the wrath of God because of sin, and all men deserve to go to hell. And if all men deserve to go to hell and suffer in hell eternally, then the sufferings of warfare are not a whole lot uh, compared with that. They're relatively minor. They only last a moment. They come and go as compared with hell. Usually those who argue against warfare use examples of horror stories and other things to illustrate how bad it is. And Without minimizing that, we have to say that these are only a down payment and only a foretaste for the damnation and the suffering that men will suffer eternally in hell unless they are redeemed. For a picture of warfare, we need only look at Golgotha to see the horrors that were measured out upon our Lord Jesus Christ, which we deserved. And with that in mind, it's impossible for a Christian, I believe, to say that war is always wrong. God himself is the great warrior who brings 
the maximum of pain and punishment upon humanity. This is foundational to our faith. If we don't believe this, we don't have a substitutionary atonement. We don't have any sufferings of Christ. We don't need to have the death of Christ. God can just kind of love everybody into the kingdom. The doctrine of hell and of the wrath of God is right at the center of our faith and a scandal to those outside. Yet paradoxically, even though this revelation of God's wrath and fury lies at the heart of our religion, the mission of the church is to proclaim peace. And peace is proclaimed throughout the scriptures. Romans 5, verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Obviously, making peace, rather than making war, is our goal. Isaiah 52, verse 7 says, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, that is the gospel, who announces peace and brings good news of well-being, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. The mission of the church is to proclaim peace. And we can just glance also at Ephesians 6, verse 15, which says, a verse that you're familiar with, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. So the church's mission is to pro proclaim peace to the world. Does this conflict with all the war and all the bloodshed we see in the Bible and what we saw just a minute ago about the wrath of God? Not only is this the case, but in our liturgy and in all historic liturgies, the one that we particularly use, peace is paramount theme throughout. At the end of every sermon, peace is proclaimed. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. It's particularly peace which is published and proclaimed in the sermon, and in connection with the liturgy, the same. When Jesus appeared to his disciples after his resurrection, he said, Peace be unto you. And so in our service, the minister says, The peace of the Lord be with you always. And you say back, and with thy spirit. Immediately after, we sing the Agnus Day, which concludes, O Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, grant us peace. And then after the communion, we sing the Nunc Dimittis, which begins, Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word. Peace, then, is a major theme in the liturgy. And thus, practically speaking, we offer peace to the world. Now, where is this peace made manifest? I think that that's the, if we ask that question, we begin to get at the distinction between Orthodox Christianity and pacifism. Peace is not made manifest by tearing down human government. Practically speaking, the locus of peace in the church is the sacrament. It's called a peace offering in the Old Testament. And we can obviously say that if all men gathered together around the sacrament of our Lord's body and blood in every place, if all men were involved in formal sacramental worship, there'd be no war because all men would be at peace. But the answer comes back, well, Christians fight with one another. And the answer to that is yes, and that's because they refuse to recognize one another's sacraments and governments. 
if various Christian churches would recognize one another's governments, recognize one another's sacraments, then there would be no conflict between Christians, certainly not the kind of outbreak of conflict that we've seen in the past. But the refusal to recognize one another's governments leads to conflict. Thus, we are back to recognizing the sacrament as the practical manifestation of peace. Theologically speaking, peace is in Christ. Christ has made peace between us and God. But practically speaking, if each person is off by himself, just me and Jesus having peace with God, that doesn't manifest peace in the world. It doesn't build community. On the other hand, Christ manifests himself preeminently in community and in the community of the church. So, peace is paramount with us. Yet we worship a God who is a God of war, a God of wrath. The heresy of pacifism we can criticize on three counts. First of all, the pacifist treats all men the same, thus rejecting the faith, because the faith sets a distinction between those who have peace with God and those who are at war with God. And that's a fundamental distinction. You're at peace with God or you're at war with God. But the pacifist, by treating all men the same and refusing to carry out judgments against other men, basically rejects that distinction. The second thing we can say about pacifism is that it removes peace from Christ and his church and cheapens it into a mere hands-off attitude. If peace is located primarily in the church and around the church, then that's one belief. But for the pacifist, peace is simply not acting aggressively or forcefully or violently toward other people. And that's an attitude which is purely political in character rather than sacramental. It's not tied to Christ. It's only tied to an abstraction of nonviolence. It's fundamentally legalistic rather than Christocentric. Third, we may say against pacifism that it exchanges the fundamental opposition of sin and righteousness for an opposition of violence and nonviolence. See, the fundamental problem in the gospel is sin versus unrighteous, sin versus righteousness. Conformity to God, antagonism to God. And thus in the gospel, those who are not conformed to God are at war with God, and God's at war with them, and God may enlist troops to punish them, angelic troops or even human troops. And that's the fundamental opposition, sin versus righteousness. But for the pacifist, the fundamental opposition is violence and nonviolence. Whether you're doing something violent to somebody else or not is the most fundamental of questions. That again removes it from God. It ceases to be God-centered, how we relate to God, rightly or wrongly, and simply becomes whether we do this or whether we don't do it, whether we are violent or whether we are not violent. For the heretic, the ultimate virtue is not righteousness but nonviolence. And the ultimate vice is violence and not sin or rebellion against God. Ultimately, then, all pacifists must reject the biblical revelation of the wrath and vengeance of God, which is what makes them heretics. Ultimately, also, the pacifist undermines all of human society, since without a principle of proper holy wrath and justice, there is no restraint upon evil. 
Now that's by way of an introduction. Let's talk this morning about the privilege that the Bible shows, privilege of being a warrior for God. And we'll get into that subject today and some of the things the Bible has to say about it. Look at Psalm 58, verse 10. Starting in just verse 1. Do you indeed speak righteousness, O gods? Do you judge uprightly, O sons of men? This is referring to civil rulers or those who are enthroned as rulers over men and thus are like God in that respect. No, in your hearts you work on righteousness. On earth you weigh out violence of your hands. The wicked are estranged from the womb. Those who speak lies go astray from the birth. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like a deaf cobra that stops up its ear so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or a skillful caster of spells. O God, shatter their teeth in their mouth. Break out the fangs of these young lions, O Lord. Let them flow away like water that runs off. When he aims his arrows, let them be as though they were cut off. Let them be like a snail that melts away as it goes along. Let them be like the miscarriages of a woman which never see the sun. Before your pots can feel the fire of thorns, he will sweep them away with the whirlwind, the green and the dry alike. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. And men will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. This is not your standard pacifist hymn. Not only does the psalmist delight, David, delight in all the horrible things that are going to happen to the wicked. They are going to become like miscarriages of a woman which don't ever see the sun. They're going to be like a snail that melts away. You know, a slug dissolves and you run your finger through it because there's nothing left. Uh, they're not going to have any power. Their teeth are going to be broken out. They're going to be burned up <clears throat> and cast away by the whirlwind. Not only does he rejoice in all these things that are going to come to pass to the wicked, but he says, I get to wash my feet in the blood of the wicked. I get to trample them out. <clears throat> this same picture is seen in Isaiah <clears throat> chapter 63. Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Basra? These crimson colors here, we'll find out where they come from. The one who is majestic in apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red? And why are your garments like one who treads in the winepress? <clears throat> and Jesus says, I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in mine anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their life blood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my raiment. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. And I trod down the peoples in my anger and poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Here's a picture of Christ. His garments got blood splattered all over it. Where does it come from? Well, from stomping on people. And the psalmist here says, the righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. 
and he will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. Now, I don't know that I really need to say this, but I will because you never know where these tapes go. This is a given in the Bible. Uh, this doesn't change. So, if you don't like it, you have to change or you have to apostatize from the Christian faith and stop pretending to be a Christian. Because this, this doesn't go away. This won't be taken out. It'll still be here a thousand years from now and on the day of judgment. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. They'll still be there. So either we adjust our thinking to say, yes, this is right and good and we agree with it, or else we have to stop pretending that we're Christians and say, well, no, I don't really believe the Bible. I just believe some nice thoughts. Because that's the only alternative there is. We are not free to go through the Bible and throw out parts of it and then still say that we're Christians. It is a privilege to be a warrior of God. And when this psalm was written by David, David had seen this kind of thing. There was a program on television a few years ago called Masada, really awful show, uh, supposedly about the Jewish revolt uh, against the Romans in the, toward the end of the first century or beginning of the second, whenever it was. At the end, uh, all the zealots go through and they massacre everybody who's holed up in this place called Masada. Of course, in the movie, they make it out that people all volunteered to kill themselves, cut their own throats. But what really happened was that the Jewish zealot armies went through and they murdered everybody that was there rather than let the Romans have them. And they slit their throats. Well, then the camera comes in, you know, and all these people are lying there with a little red line across their throat. Well, that's not what happens when you slit someone's throat. There's quarts and quarts of blood in here, and this is a big artery, and it's near the heart, and it just comes out like a fountain. And if you read descriptions of warfare, blood fills up. I mean, it would fill up. If we kill everybody in here, blood would fill up in here a couple of inches on the floor. Like, it would pool up. And it, uh, the Bible speaks of rivers of blood and blood coming up to several feet high, and there are plenty of cases in history where that comes to pass. Blood runs in the street, doesn't dry out as soon as it comes out. When David wrote this, he had that in mind. This wasn't mere poetry. He had, he had been involved in battles and had looked down at his feet and seen it pooled around to his ankles. He thought it was great. Psalm 149 says the same kind of thing. Now you know why churches don't sing psalms anymore. Psalm 149. Praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song, and his praise in the congregation of the godly ones. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the sons of Zion rejoice in their king. Let, him, let them praise his name with dancing. Let them sing praises to him with timbrel and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the afflicted ones with salvation. Let's close the Bible lest we read on. No, unfortunately, for some, we have to read on. It says, Let the godly ones exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouths and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, <clears throat> to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the judgment written, 
This is an honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. Honor and privilege to be a warrior and to execute judgments. God, we are told, delights to destroy the wicked. He doesn't delight to destroy the righteous. He doesn't delight to destroy the sinner to whom he offers peace and salvation every week. Anyone who comes here, peace is offered to. But there does come a point at which God delights to destroy the wicked. Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let's tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. And God says, Oh dear, man's in rebellion. No, it says, He that sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Similarly, in Proverbs chapter 1, it says that God laughs at the destruction of the wicked. Here it is, and it's nice how this is put together. Proverbs chapter 1, starting in verse 20. Wisdom shouts in the street. She lifts her voice in the square. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the gates of the city, she utters her sayings. How long, naive ones, will you love simplicity, and scoffers delight in scoffing, and fools hate knowledge? Turn to my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. So the offer of peace is there in the church. Wisdom. God himself. But, God goes on to say, Because I called and you refused, I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention, and you neglected all my counsel and did not want my reproof. I will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when what you dread the most comes upon you, when your dread comes like a storm and your calamity comes on like a whirlwind. When distress and anguish come on you, then they'll call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me, because they hated knowledge and would not accept the fear of the Lord. So it's a privilege to be a warrior for God. Then in the Bible, that means things that are very concrete. Now, I believe the way to understand this privilege, or another dimension to the privilege, not just that we get to align ourselves with God and agree with him, agree with him that these people deserve to be destroyed, agree with him that it's a privilege, but it's also an aspect of man's exaltation. God created Adam and Eve young, but with a promise and a destiny to grow and mature until such time as they would be invested with authority to rule over the world. The Bible says, Vengeance is mine and I will repay is one of God's personal prerogatives to carry out the destruction of the wicked. And yet the scripture says that man is like God and as he grows, God will commit this prerogative into his hands. Thus, Psalm 82 speaks of civil rulers as gods. God takes his stand among the gods. He judges in the midst of the gods. And this is talking about civil rulers, and this is common in the Old Testament. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Vindicate the weak and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and needy and deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. That's what rulers, gods, are supposed to do. But 
They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, this is God speaking, I said, you are gods, and all of you are sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, you will die like mere men and fall like any one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for it is thou who dost possess all nations. An aspect of this judicial deification of man is that he is elevated to become like God in this sense and is privileged to carry the sword and execute justice. It is a privilege. Now, when we understand that, we can begin to understand what the Old Testament shows us about war and about judgment. Why is it that between the fall and the flood, judgment was not executed on the earth, at least not righteous judgment, not judgment by men? It's because people hadn't matured to the point, the race as a whole had not matured to the point where God was willing to give, to invest man with this power, with his privilege of judicial godhood, we may say, the right to carry out God's judgments and to execute other men, to kill other men. See, how can man presume to take the life of the image of God? Obviously, only God can take the life of the image of God. Yeah, and so it takes a special act for God to bestow that privilege upon men. When man fell, he was trying to seize the prerogatives of God instead of waiting for God to bestow them when and as he wished. And as a result, we find that the climax of human sin is when one man takes it upon himself to kill another man. Lamech said to his wives, Genesis 4, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech, give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. That's made to be the climax of evil. And, of course, it started when Cain took upon that privilege. Cain took upon himself the right to put other men to death, to put the image of God to death. But God had not committed that privilege to the human race, and so when Cain sinned, God did not institute a civil government to deal with him. He let him go. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Behold, thou hast driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from thy face I will be hidden, and I shall be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. It will come about that whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. The Lord appointed a sign for Cain, lest anyone finding him should slay him. Before the flood, God had not given the right to take human life into the hands of man. There's no capital punishment and no just warfare, no right to shed blood. That comes after the flood, and it's given to Noah. It's very interesting how it happens if we look at Genesis 8, starting in verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled the soothing aroma. Now that has to do with peace. In the Old Testament, uh, people are 
people who are tense and angry are made peaceful by a variety of means. David plays for Saul. That makes Saul calm down. And the Lord smells soothing aroma. We read here in a bunch of other places. And it causes, the language is that God is no longer angry. And he is at peace with man. So God says within himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. So we have here peace established between God and man. But notice what happens as a result of the peace that's established between God and man is that God invests man with authority to carry out capital punishment and to make holy war. God goes on to say, The fear of you and terror of you shall be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky, with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give it all to you as I gave the green plant. In other words, you can eat any animals, clean or unclean. You can eat any of them, just as formerly I gave you the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And surely I will require your life blood. From every beast I will require it, and from every man. From every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood... By man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. Now for the first time, humanity is given the right to exercise capital punishment, to shed blood, to do all these things we've said are a privilege, the privilege of being a warrior. Up till this time, God didn't give it. Now there are several observations we can make on this, which I think are important to understanding the way this theme develops in the Bible. First of all, peace with God is the foundation for our enthronement as holy warriors. It's when, man, it's when some men have peace with God that God elevates them and enthrones them into this Sabbath posture of being judges and having the right to pass judgment on other men. Now, there's a corollary of that, and that is that those who refuse to be God's warriors do not have peace with God. And there's psychological reasons for that that we can think of. If somebody's afraid or guilt-ridden or timid, then they will be afraid to pass judgment on other men. It takes a certain amount of psychological security and peace with God to be able to ascend to a position where you're willing to pass judgment on others. Man has to be justified, man or woman has to be justified, and be at peace with God before they're able, with any confidence at all, to exercise judgment on others. Jesus makes this point when he says to those who are going to stone the woman taken in adultery, let him that is without sin cast the first stone. And it says they, since they were all guilty of the same sin, were too, felt too guilty to go out and do anything about it. Now, suppose those people had been justified by faith. Suppose they had peace with God. Then they could say, yes, in former days we did commit this sin, but it never came to trial, and thanks be to God, uh, we're still alive today, and we deserve to be put to death, but 
We're not because we have peace with God. And yet in this situation, we have to pass judgment. You see, if you have peace with God, then your own sins and your own guilt, they don't interfere with your ability to deal with other situations. But if a person doesn't have peace with God, then his own inner sense of guilt will cause him to be unable. You've all heard, we have all heard, certain types of Christians go to that passage and say, well, I mean, after all, we're all guilty, so how can we pass judgment? Well, that's a good question. But the Bible tells us to pass judgment. We have to pass judgment. Jesus said, judge righteous judgment. It's not an option. The Bible everywhere says that we must do it. So how do we do it? By having peace with God. Peace with God is the foundation for our enthronement as holy warriors. Now, we can run that right back to what we said at the beginning of this hour about the sacrament. It's the sacrament that makes us holy warriors. It gives us peace with God, makes us into sacrifices, but it also puts a sword into our hands to execute judgment on the earth. Second thing we see in this passage is that the eating of meat is a sign of this new stage of investiture. Notice that for the first time, man is allowed to eat meat. Now, we explored some of the symbolism of this a few months ago in the course that we had on food and faith. I don't want to go into it except to point it out that the right to eat meat, God ties it in psychologically with the right to take the blood of other men. And, and there you can begin to see connections with that. To eat meat, you've got to kill the animal, Right? And you've got to drain the blood out. So the right to kill other men and shed their blood is connected with the right to kill animals and shed their blood. Animals are made as analogies to men, and God, at least here, puts these things together. Now this explains something which is a curiosity in the history of the church, and that is that heretical and pacifistic groups always tend toward vegetarianism. There's a deep psychic structure in man which connects his ability to eat meat and shed the blood of animals with his privilege and duty to execute judgment against other men and against the wicked. It's a psychological connection, but it's real. Even in the Bible we see this kind of thing. 1 Timothy chapter 4 talks about the heretics, starting in verse 1. The Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. By means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Heretical groups always wind up with lists of what you can eat and can't eat. That was real common in the 19th century. Uh, various movements forbade mustard, ketchup, other condiments, salt, unclean food, unclean meat, or uh, coffee, tea. It's always a list of forbidden foods associated with heretical groups. It's not the same thing as fasting. Catholic churches have always said there's times to fast. We may fast from certain richer foods for certain simpler foods, but there's never a principle <clears throat> of not eating these things at all. But the groups which reject dominion 
and reject the privilege of being warriors for God always tend to move in a vegetarian direction. And you can see it today. A third thing we see in this passage is that the robe is the sign of office. We don't see it right here, we see it right away. If we read further, we read in verse 20, Noah began farming and planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and became drunk. That doesn't necessarily have to mean what we take it to mean sometimes. It just means he drank enough to become sleepy and warm, and he uncovered himself inside his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, which means he had to go inside the tent and look around because this wasn't a teepee. It was, you know, your big oriental tent. So Ham is looking for, looking for something on his father, not just walking by and glancing in. And he went outside and told his two brothers, tried to enlist them in this conspiracy. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. Now, what's going on here? In the first place, this action is totally symbolic. See, Noah is inside the tent. Nobody can see him. The fact he doesn't have his clothes on is no big deal. I mean, you and I take our clothes off when we go into the shower and we're in the bathroom, we're toweling off. You know, we don't feel naked because nobody can see us. Unless somebody comes walking in the house and busts down the bathroom door, See, we are clothed by our house. The house that we're in is like a garment. And so, so Noah doesn't have clothes on and he's in his bed in the tent. Big deal. There's no need to go in and put another garment on top of him. It's not because he might catch cold that Shem and Japheth do this. They do it for symbolic reason. The robe is a symbol of authority and office. Shem and Japheth put it on their shoulders. Why do that? I mean, why not just carry it backwards with their arms out like this, you know? You go over here and hold this blanket, and I will, and we'll walk backwards. No, it wasn't a blanket. It was a garment. They didn't do it that way. They put it on their shoulders. They hold it like this, and you walk backwards side by side, and it's over your shoulder and the other guy's shoulder. But let's just face it. This is El Weirdo scenario. <laughs> you don't do stuff like this every day. Shoulders in the Bible always had to do with support and upholding. The pillars in a building are called shoulders. So they're affirming their father's office. They walk backward. They don't see the nakedness of their father. They don't relate to him that way. Nothing homosexual implied here. I mean, you'd have to go way into deep psychology to see that. might be there, but it's not here. On the basis of Romans 1, you might argue that a depth psychological analysis of this could lead you in the direction of homosexuality, but it's not in the text. It just means that they are relating to him as the office bearer, the one who's robed. Their faces are turned away, and they put the robe back on him, thus affirming his office. And there he has it. Ham... This tells us what Ham had in mind. See, all we have, it says, is Ham saw the nakedness of his father and then told his two brothers outside. What did he tell them? Hey, Dad's naked in the tent. Well, that's information. Why do all this other stuff? See, we have to fill it in. The passage is somewhat cryptic or condensed. But it's not hard to. Ham, obviously, was trying to enlist his brothers in a conspiracy to steal the privilege of his father. Just as Adam and Eve had tried to steal the privilege of being God instead of waiting for God to confer upon them 
a robe of responsibility and authority. So Ham doesn't want to wait. Noah's already lived, you know, six, seven hundred years, and just how much longer is this old man going to live before we get to have the robe? So Ham's tired. Now what's interesting is, you know, when this happened before, man sinned, God came and passed judgment. This time, judgment has been committed to humanity. Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, so he said, Cursed be Canaan. Now before it was God who dispensed curses and blessings, now it's a man enthroned as judicial God, secondary to God, the true God, ultimate God. Noah says, Cursed be Canaan, a slave of slaves, he shall be to his brothers. And he also said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, let Canaan be his slave. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and Canaan be his slave. Now, it's a man who stands in the place of God and passes judgment. Now, for reasons which are not made immediately clear in the text and which we have to guess at, we can come up with a pretty good guess here too, it's not Ham who's cursed, but rather Canaan. I think the reason is that Ham had four sons. The other three sons aren't necessarily in sin at this point. But Canaan is the one who is going to imitate his father Ham. Cush, Mizraim, and Put aren't necessarily going to imitate Ham, at least not right away. But Canaan will. Just as Ham was a rebellious person who tried to seize authority, so Canaan will be a rebellious person who tries to seize authority. And the text says that those who try to seize authority and privilege become slaves. Cursed be Canaan, a slave of slaves, he will be to his brothers. But more than that, here we see a man putting a curse upon Canaan, and later on, under God, and later on God enlists men to carry out the curse. You see, the destruction of the Canaanites by the Israelite army is just like the flood. We read before the flood that the iniquity of man had developed so far that it was no longer possible for a man to be allowed to live in the world. I mean, it had come to the point where now the earth was in revolt. And God says, I have to destroy man. It's gone too far. I have to completely wipe him out. Now, did God say, Noah, here is a laser gun. Nobody else has got anything. So you just go through the earth and mow down every human being with a laser gun. Could have. He didn't. God did it himself without Noah doing anything. But when the iniquity of the Amorites is full and it's time to destroy the Canaanites, God comes to Israel and he says, I'll make you my army. Here, have some swords and I'll go before you with my angels and we'll work on this together. But I want you to chop some heads off. I want you to bathe your feet in some blood. I want you to kill some men, women, and children. I want you to destroy them all and burn their cities down. At this point in history, then, judgment is given to God's representatives, Noah being the first. And judgment there is passed against Canaan, and when the judgment is executed, it's executed by men. Now, there's nothing in the New Testament that says that privilege and that duty and that responsibility has ever been removed. 
may be carried out in somewhat different ways, but hasn't been removed. In fact, the entire purpose of the incarnation, death and resurrection of Christ, was so that humanity might be brought to its eschatological fullness and made a judge over the world. Jesus is judge over the world, but not in his divinity, it's in his humanity that he's judge over the world. He is already judge over the world in his divinity. It's the humanity of Jesus Christ which has been elevated to the right hand of the Father and made judge of the world, and we in union with him have that same privilege. So this is a type of our enthronement. Now next week, we will begin to look at the Old Testament and see how God trained his people in war. Because that becomes an important perspective on the Old Testament as a whole. Psalm 144, we'll just read this today, verses 1 through 4 says, Blessed be the Lord my rock who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. David says this. My loving kindness and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield, and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues my people under me. O Lord, what is man that thou dost take knowledge of him, or the son of man that thou dost think of him? Man is like a mere breath. His days are like a passing shadow. In other words, from David's perspective, it's amazing that God would take something as insignificant as fallen man, who is like a mere breath and his days are like a passing shadow, and elevate him to such a high privilege of judicial godhood and enable him to carry out and execute these judgments on the earth, on the earth. And not only so, but God comes down and takes such an intimate interest that he spends time training David in how to be a warrior. Now, so next time we'll look at how God trained Jacob. We'll look at the book of Judges just briefly. And then we'll start looking at David and see how God trained David for war, some of the difficulties that were put before David. And that's where we can begin to become practical because we can draw lessons from that to the conflicts that we face out in the world. We could take discussion for a couple of minutes if there is any. Yes? You know, when you look at the, uh, the Ten Commandments and how on Mount Sinai they were given, uh, I want to make an analogy between the, the Sabbath and the capital function here. The, uh, as I see it, the publication of the Sabbath requirement was, I mean, candidated the giving of the, the commandment. Uh-huh. <laughs> In the same way, it seems to me that we could say that possibly capital punishment candidated the aspect of Noah. I mean, Cain, he said, hey, look, you know, if I get out of here, people are going to get me. Mm-hmm. It seems that there was an ideal or a concept of capital punishment there. There was a concept that he deserved to be destroyed. But I think what you see there is that God says, I will not commit that into the hands of people to do at this point in history. See, I think the text reads differently in Genesis 9 where it says, as I gave you the green plant, so now I give you, you know, from now on you can eat the meat of the animal. From now on, uh, you're supposed to take blood vengeance. 
The Sabbath commandment in Exodus 20 isn't phrased that way. It's just given as a law. And we do find that they already knew that law and were keeping it. But they knew there are a whole bunch of other laws that they already knew and were keeping too that are not written down until we get to Mount Sinai. So in my mind, at least, there is a distinction in the way the text is written. And all the implication in Genesis is that they didn't have that privilege before and then they were given it later on. question I have about the... Um about judgment and about, I mean, you know, pacifists don't really see the legitimacy of, of Christians entering into uh, judgments uh, with unbelievers or believers or anybody, really. How do you look at that aspect of judgment, say like in Corinthians 5, where it says that as, you know, Paul writes to the Corinthian churches, hey, you know, y'all missed the boat. I wasn't talking about judging those outside the church. I was talking about judging those within. And he speaks there of not making judgment to unbelievers. Well, at that stage in history, they hadn't been given it. But when Constantine came to the power, came to the throne, then, then God did give to the Christians the right to pass judgment over culture at large. See, there's stages of this as it develops in history, and that's why I think when we look at the Old Testament, we begin to see some of the stages whereby God progressively elevated his own people and gave them wider and wider areas of to pass judgment over, then that is also a model for the new covenant age. Let's stand and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would prepare our hearts now to worship you. Send those safely home who have already drawn into your presence for worship and bring us back safely tonight. We might gather around your sacrament and experience your peace. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.